Good morning, good morning. Wow. Everybody can start finding a way to your seats. It is great to see everyone this morning. Just talking to one of our elders, Greg, and just looking around this room and all the fun and laughter and joy. Kind of feel a little post-COVID now. We're getting close. God's at work and just seeing everybody come together and to worship the Lord on this joyous occasion. I'd like to welcome everybody who's in the gym or those watching at home. We're so glad you're joining us on this morning of celebration. And as we do each Easter, I want to put out a declaration and have you respond why we're here this morning and what we're in experiencing so much joy that he is risen amen amen we are here because of the resurrection of our king so i'm going to have you stand this morning we're going to go ahead and launch into prayer and worship and praise i want to read over us a scripture passage and as we do so many times i want us to be then in a heart of prayer i'm going to read a puritan prayer that we read from this amazing book often just to declare these prayers to the lord so let's just soak it in this morning. Just focus on the Lord if you want to close your eyes. And let's enter in to the joy of the Lord this morning. I'm reading from Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, and for an angel of the Lord had descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guard shook for fear and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. But he is not here, for he has risen just as he said. So come and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is a going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. For behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, for there they will see me. So just in a posture of prayer, if you want to bow your heads and just soak in these words as we offer this up to the Lord this morning. Oh God of my exodus, great was the joy of Israel's sons when Egypt died upon the shore. Far greater the joy when the Redeemer's foe lay crushed in the dust. Jesus strides forth as the victor, conqueror of death, hell, and all opposing might. He bursts the bands of death, tramples the powers of darkness down, and lives forever. He, my gracious surety, apprehended for payment of my debt, comes forth from the prison house of the grave free and triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Show me herein the proof that his vicarious offering is accepted, that the chains of justice are satisfied, that the devil's scepter is shivered, that his wrongful throne is leveled. Give me the assurance that in Christ I died, in him I rose, in his life I live, in his victory I triumph, and in his ascension I shall be glorified. Adorable Redeemer, thou hast lifted up upon a cross, art ascended to the highest heaven, 
thou who has been a man of sorrows, was crowned with thorns, art now as Lord of life wreathed with glory. Once no shame more deep than thine, no agony more bitter, no death more cruel, but now no exaltation more high, no life more glorious, no advocate more effective. Thou art in the triumph car leading captive thine enemies behind thee. What more could be done that thou hast done? Thy death is my life, thy resurrection my peace, thy ascension my hope, and thy prayers my comfort. Let's worship our risen King this morning. Amazing grace, and amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. For I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And hallelujah, Christ is risen from the grave. Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Prodigals welcome home. The prodigal is welcome home. The sinner now will sing. For the God who died, he came back to life. Everything has changed. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. Hallelujah. Christ is risen from the grave. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, fear, where is your power? The mighty.
Yeah. 
bow your heads, please. your name forever and we join with other congregations this day in all different parts of this world to do it uh, to do that this morning we we don't even have enough words or adjectives or anything to express our gratitude for what you've done it is it's beyond words and we are we are humbled we think of the song how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away as wounds that mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. You have made a way for us to be in, in your family. You've brought us into your family, and you have made us right before you. You've brought us into your family. You've accepted us. You have set us apart as a special people for you, and, and we, we praise you for that. We praise you for the love. We, we bring no uh, value. We have ruined lives. We are wretches. We have nothing that we bring in and of themselves, but you desire to shed your love on us and to raise us up to be to be with you and thank you so much we we uh, pray for uh, pastors in in different parts of this city and different parts of the world as they meet their congregation and speak and share your word this day we we pray for Grady as he does that here we pray for pastor Truel at uh, Thorington Road Baptist Church we pray for Foch, as he as he does that with the young men at Safety Net, we pray for that as the, the youth in our church are learning uh, about your word and your relationship that you desire with them. And we just pray for the relationships that you have established to be strengthened, to be founded on your word and your truth. We pray for those that do not know you to come to know you and, and the love, the vast love that you that you have for them. We thank you for work that you've done in our lives so many of us already and we pray that you will continue to work in us to bring us more to reflect your, your son Jesus we pray for the leaders that we have in our nation at, at all different levels at, uh, at our state level with Governor Ivey and our city with Mayor Reed and we just pray for them in wisdom in behalf of, of their decisions they, that they have to make we pray for our president and our congress and we just we pray for them that they will seek to honor you and and come to know you if that be the case but that you will you will uh, give them wisdom on how to handle the decisions they have to make the decisions they have to make relative to COVID in particular and protecting and preserving the life of, of people that are here we pray for folks that are uh, serving overseas in different places we pray for Pastor Chris in Angola as he as he travels and reaches out for folks to be involved in evangelism and church planning in that country we pray for you to give him your, your spirit to just touch him as to who he should speak to and, and your spirit to touch those folks that they should know that this is something they're to be involved with. We just we pray for your mercies upon the people of that, of that nation that you'll bring them to yourself. We thank you for the opportunity to, to give here to our uh, church. We thank you that we can, we can meet and worship here in freedom and we just pray that uh, 
you will uh, multiply these the gifts that have been provided both here and in, 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 in uh, online, and that you will um, you will help them multiply and and bring uh, glory to your kingdom. We pray that we in our lives, in our words, in our speech, in our behavior, in our thoughts, will do the same. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, good morning, Gateway family. It is great to see you on this Easter morning. My heart is full as we've been singing to the Lord and praying and just thinking about Christ's resurrection from the dead. I want you to find Philippians chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word. Philippians chapter 3 in your copy of God's Word or on your Bible app. We're going to pause our study of Rooted. We've been working through a new teaching series on Sunday morning where we're looking at key questions of our faith what we believe, and then running to Scripture to find the answer. We're going to pause that this morning and pick back that up next week, because I want us to focus on Easter and what this weekend is all about. The message of Easter that we're celebrating this morning, our songs and our prayers, what we did when we gathered Friday night as a faith family, is summarized so beautifully in what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. I want you to see it on the screen while you're finding Philippians, where it'll be this morning. But this beautiful message from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says, For I delivered to you as a first importance. And don't miss that, friends. What we're talking about is a first importance. It says, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Then in verse 4, and that he was buried. I think we got up on the screen there for you. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Friends, what we celebrated Friday night was that first part, that Christ was buried, that he died for our sins. But this morning we gather together to celebrate the fact that Christ did not stay dead. He is risen from the dead. What we're celebrating on this Easter Sunday morning, the resurrection of Christ. Now, for many, if not most of you, this is a very familiar teaching, isn't it? You've heard about the resurrection of Christ most of your life, I would presume. You probably heard about it in Bible studies as a child. You read about it in children's Bibles at homes. You read it in your Bibles now. You discuss it in your small groups. You've been exposed to it. You've even perhaps seen it in movies or dramatized in church dramas over the years. So it's a very familiar story for us. And for many, if not most of us, I hope you believe it's literally true. We're believing in the actual historical resurrection of Christ from the dead. And there's good reasons to believe it's true, but that's a sermon for a whole other day. But today on this Easter Sunday, I want to ask us a more personal question for each one of us. And this is our question, our idea for the morning. It's simply this, friends. How is my belief in the resurrection of Jesus changing me? Again, most of you would probably say, I believe in this, Grady. I know this is true. But not just do we know it's true, friends, but how is it actually changing us? What's different in our lives because we believe that Christ died for our sins and he has risen from the dead? How is it changing us? Friends, if you were with us at Gateway several years ago, we walked through a whole year through the Gospel of John. If you remember from that study, one of the things we saw over and over in the Gospel of John is that true faith changes us. That true faith produces a radical transformation in our lives. And if there is no change in us, then there's really no faith. Even if we've done a lot of external things, we prayed a sinner's prayer, we fought for it in the church service, we've joined a church, we, all these things, that doesn't matter. There's no faith, there's no change, no transformation in our lives, because true faith will change us. So on this Easter Sunday morning, as we think about the familiarity of Christ's resurrection from the dead, I want us to look deep into our hearts this morning and ask the Holy Spirit to help us search our hearts and to ask the question, how is my belief in Jesus' resurrection actually changing my life? Now, for the Apostle Paul, the one who wrote what we're going to look at in Philippians 3 this morning, the one who wrote 1 Corinthians 15 that we were reading just a minute ago, for him, the resurrection of Jesus was not just some interesting theological observation. 
though it was very theological for him. For the Apostle Paul, the resurrection of Jesus was not just some historical event of curiosity for him, though he knew it was historically true. For Paul, the resurrection of Jesus radically changed, radically transformed his life. There's many places in Scripture where we can see the transformation that happened in Paul's life, but one of those is where we are this morning in Philippians chapter 3, in an incredibly autobiographical part of his writings about his life and how Christ has changed him. Now, before we get to our verses for this morning, we'll start this morning in verse number 7 there, but before we get to verse number 7, to understand the difference Jesus' resurrection made for Paul, we would understand where he was before he met the resurrected Christ, what Paul was like before he followed Christ. So go ahead and look in your copy, guys. We're back at Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. I want you to see kind of his starting point, his life before Christ. So what we're going to look at this morning has some context for us. So back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now what does he mean by flesh here? By flesh he's talking about himself, his abilities, his privileges, his entire way of life before he met Jesus. He's saying, I have confidence in myself. Before I met Christ, I was very self-confident in my privileges, my abilities, what I was doing. Now, specifically, what was he confident in? He tells us, look in verse 5 here, in verses 5 and 6. He, he describes what he's confident in before Christ, that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal of persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And this was a man who was as Jewish as you could get. He sought to follow every detail of the law, and he was so religiously zealous that he was willing to persecute Christians to try to stop this thing that he thought was an abomination in his sight. It was a, 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 a perverse faith to him. And on top of all these things he lists here, he was a Roman citizen. Friends, for what Paul's telling us is before he met Christ, he had everything someone in the world would think he should have. He had the perfect citizenship, he had his religion, he had his wealth, he had his reputation, he had influence, he had power, people feared him, he had it all. As we pick up this morning in verse 7, you see a man who has been radically changed because he encountered the resurrected Jesus. So as we read this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12 of Philippians chapter 3. I want you to be looking as we read for how did believing in the resurrected Jesus change him? But not just stop there. From his example, I want us to look into our own hearts and apply and ask, how should my belief in the resurrection of Jesus be changing me as well? So that in view, I want us to read God's word together. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the word of God? Friends, we have a treasure that God has revealed himself to us. And let's look at it together this morning. The words will be on the screen for you as well when I'm reading out the English Standard Version. Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, or that I may, be, that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how powerful your word is. And we pray this day as we, your people, gather together to study it, that the Holy Spirit would come and fill each one of us to give us understanding to the truth of this text. 
and to help us understand how our belief in the resurrection of Christ should be changing our lives. We ask for much grace to not just understand, but to apply it. As we saw in James, to not just be hearers of the word, to be doers of it as well. So would you come meet with us, O Lord, and transform us as your people, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So Paul has a big transformation here between verses 6 and 7. He goes from, look how righteous I am, to I have no righteousness. He goes from, look at my zeal to stop followers of Christ, to I am a follower of Christ and I want to know him more. So what changed between verses 6 and 7 in Paul's life? Well, he gives us a small glimpse here down in verse 12. Look at the very last phrase of verse 12. He simply says, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. What changed was that Christ made Paul his own person, made him a follower of Christ. Now, in the Greek, which was the original language this was written in here, this word has made is passive. That means Paul didn't do this to himself. That means this was done to him, that Christ did for him what Paul could never do for himself. But even in our English translation of this, it misses some of the force of this because this word that Christ has made me his own is really, in a sense, weak because the more literal translation would be Christ seized me. The idea of grabbing by force that Christ seized Paul and changed Paul here. That he, Christ pursued Paul when Paul was not even pursuing him. And in fact, we see that if you look back in the book of Acts, I want you to see it on the screen, Acts chapter 9. I want us to look at verses 1 through 8 of Acts 9 because I want you to see what happens here, what happened between verses 6 and verse 7 there. So in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, but Saul, let me just say here, this is the same guy here. His name changed. Saul was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Roman name. And so as we go throughout the book of Acts, you see his name shift from the Hebrew name to his Roman name. But Saul, same person we're talking about here, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So they found any belonging to the way, that was the name for Christians at the time, for followers of Christ, if any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, Saul, Paul, answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three, day, three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. When he says that Christ seized him, that's exactly what happened. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, to bind them, to arrest them, to try to stop the spread of the Christian message. And Christ, the resurrected Christ, literally appeared to him on the road. He encountered the resurrected living Christ, and that experience of Christ forever changed him. You look a few verses later in Acts chapter 9, verse 17 here, I have a guy named Ananias, one of the followers of Christ, who was helping Paul here. And it says, so Ananias departed, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, on Paul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Now, I just want to stop right here for just a minute before we dig deeper into this. I want you to realize that for Paul here, when he encountered the resurrected Jesus, when he believed in the resurrected Jesus, this was not just something he did so he could avoid hell. This was not just a prayer he prayed in his life so he could then live like he wants but escape eternal punishment. This was not just a point in time where he said, oh yeah, I remember one time in my past when I believed. This was for him something that was transformative of his whole 
life. And friends, if we're honest, the way so many in our culture approach faith in Christ, it is little more than a prayer that is prayed or a decision that is made some point in someone's past that they look to to avoid something they don't want in the future. And it's little more than that. And friends, that's not what Paul shows us real faith is like. Here we are in Philippians 3, some 30 years after this radical encounter he has with the resurrected Jesus. And we see a life that has been radically transformed because he has faith in Christ. Now in Philippians 3, we see four ways that Paul's life was changed because he met the resurrected Christ. Four things that are different in him now because he now knows Christ and believes in the resurrected Christ. But again, friends, I don't want to look at these and be like, but that was nice for Paul. I want to look at this and go, how is this true for me? Do I know Christ? Have I experienced the resurrected Christ in such a way that my life is different? So four ways. Number one, when Paul met Christ, it changed his identity. When Paul met Christ, fundamentally, number one, it changed his identity. Friends, his faith was not like an addendum he put on his life. His faith was not something peripheral he added on. His faith was not a one-day-a-week experience on a Sunday morning. His encounter with the resurrected Jesus changed his entire understanding of himself. Go back to verse 8 in Philippians 3 here. Because you see in verse 8, the very last phrase here, he says that I may gain Christ. Now, verse 9, that's what I want us to focus on here. That I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that, that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, remember, a few verses earlier, before he met the resurrected Christ, he saw himself as a good person, one who obeyed the law, one who was a righteous person, a person of influence, he saw himself as basically good. His identity was in his character. His identity is in what he did. If you ask Paul, who is Paul? He would say, I am one who is a good person. I am one who is going to seek to do what is right. He built his whole identity in himself. And friends, if we're honest, that's what our temptation is and what so many in our culture do. Our identity is in who I think I am and my goodness and then what I do because of that. But now his identity is totally changed. His, his understanding of himself is totally different. He's not finding his identity in his citizenship and his religious practice and his morality and what he's done. In fact, he renounces all of that. Look back at the beginning of verse 9. It says, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. He renounces all these things that his identity was in, all these things that were most important to him. He says, no, I'm putting those behind me. I'm putting those off. And something else is more important to him now. And what is his identity now? Verse 9, quite simply, it is he now belongs to God. Look at this. He says, I have a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes notice, is from God. So his identity now is that he has a righteousness that came from God. Because when, he can, when Christ died, we often think about how he takes our sin and our sin got put on Christ so we could be forgiven. But I think we often forget that Christ's righteousness was then given to us. That on the cross, not only was our sin put on Christ, but Christ's righteousness was imputed, was given to us. So we are now righteous, not because of anything we've done, but simply because of what Christ has done for us. And therefore, we can belong to God. We can know him. Notice that first phrase in verse 9. Paul says, and to be found in him. To be found, this is the imagery of being at home, to be united with Christ. In the words of the catechism we've been working through as a church, it's that one we saw from the very first week, that we belong to God. That Paul's identity has completely shifted. It's no longer, I'm a good person. My identity is no longer in what I do. His identity is, I belong to God. Not because of anything I have done, but because of God's grace that he has made me righteous in his sight. Friends, before we move on and see the second way Paul changed, I want us to stop and ask ourselves, are we different because we met the resurrected Christ? 
What is your identity in? What is my identity in? Is it any difference because we believe in the resurrected Christ? Or are we still doing what the world does, finding our identity in our, in our, in our citizenship, finding our identity in our religious practices, finding our identity in what we do, our jobs, our morality, our views on certain issues, our influence, our power? Are we running to the things the world tries to find their identity in? Or can we say with Paul, when someone says, who are you, that we answer in the words we saw a few weeks ago, I am not my own, but I belong to Christ. Friends, what is our identity? Is our identity any different because we have met the resurrected Jesus? So there's a second thing that changed for Paul, not only his identity, but second of all, don't miss this, he ch- it changed his values. It changed his values. It changed what was important to him. It changed what he lived for. It changed what he longed for in life. Look back at verse number seven here and look at how this changed for him. He says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, to describe his change in values, he uses some banking terms here. He says gains and losses. Gains are things that are credits, things that were added to an account. Losses are debits, things that are taken out of the account. Notice what Paul does here in verse 7. He says, whatever gain I had. Now, realize in the Greek, again, the language this was written, and the word gain is plural. He says, whatever gains, plural, whatever many gains that I thought I had, whatever the many things are that I thought were going to help me, again, his citizenship, his power, his reputation, his morality, he puts all those gains, so I had all these many gains that I thought made my account good. And now he sums all those up. Think of your, if you like Excel spreadsheets like I do, you think about all those things that are adding up, all the things he was putting his identity in, and now it comes up to a sum total at the bottom is the word loss. Not a plural word loss, but the singular word loss. He took all of his gains, all these things he had lived for, that he had valued, and he simply says they are nothing but a singular loss to him. He's not saying those things were necessarily wrong or sinful. Some were, some weren't. But he's saying, this is not what I value. This is not what I live for. So what changed for Paul? These things weren't forcibly taken from him at the time. What changed? And notice the word here in verse 7 is the word counted. It's an important word for us as we think about, does our faith in the resurrected Christ change? So whatever gain I had, he says, I counted as lost. The word counted means to consider, to think a certain way. So what he's saying here in verse 7 is whatever those many gains I thought I have, I now think differently about them. I now consider them in my mind. I think about them as to be a loss. Go to verse 8, you see him repeat that same idea again. He said, indeed, I count everything. I think differently now about these things. I now consider them all to be a loss for the sake of Christ, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So if you think about it, when we studied Ephesians, we saw that transformation is putting off the old, but it's not enough to stop there, it's putting on the new. Do you see what Paul's doing here? He put off his old value system. But experiencing the resurrected Christ means he put off putting his value in all these things he used to pursue, and instead his value is in simply knowing Christ. He puts on the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, not just knowing about Christ, but knowing Christ Jesus in a personal way. Notice here in verse 8 this important phrase here where he says, my Lord, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, the one he personally knows, the one he personally joyfully submits to, that he has found something of much greater value than what he formerly valued. What you see Paul describing here is what Jesus told us following him was like. Jesus used to use things called parables that are stories to explain truths to people. One of the ones Jesus used was in Matthew chapter 13, and he shows us what it looks like to follow him, to experience the kingdom of heaven. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, this is Jesus speaking, says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his what? What's the next word here? In his joy, he goes and he sells how much of what he has? 
all. He says all. So in his joy, he sells everything to go buy that. What does this show? This shows value that for someone who really has faith in Christ, they discover Christ to be the thing that's surpassing about all the things in life they ran after and they valued before. They're now willing to part with because they want to know Christ. Jesus continues in Matthew 13, 45 with another parable, another short one here to help us understand. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And then in verse 46, he tells us, who on finding that one pearl of great value, the thing he's been looking for all his life, he went and sold how much? All that he had and bought it. Friends, do you see what Paul's training for? It's what Jesus told us following Christ would be like. It is changing our values. It's not just a prayer we pray so that we go to heaven. Following Christ is a change in our whole values. where we put off valuing everything we used to value. Instead, we put on valuing knowing Christ. So knowing Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, changed Paul's identity. It changed his values. Again, before we go into the third, I want us to ask, how about us, friends? Are our values any different than the world's because we say we know Christ? Are we valuing things differently now than before we met Christ? Or are we valuing what the world values? Is our value in life what we live for and long for the most? Is it things like ease and affluence and wealth and prosperity and health and being famous and respected and powerful or loved? We could go on and on with the things that the world says are most valuable to pursue. Friends, are we valuing those or can we really say like Paul, because we've met the resurrected Christ, that what I value most is knowing Christ and being known by him, having a real relationship with him? Friends, did we mean what we sang in the psalm just before the sermon, that Christ is the greatest treasure of my longing soul? We all proclaim that. It was an easy one to sing. You're the greatest treasure of my longing soul, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. But friends, do we mean that? Do our lives show that we really do see Christ as the greatest treasure. Friends, true faith will change us. For Paul, it changed his identity. It changed what he valued. Number three, though, friends, true faith for Paul changed how he viewed hardships. It changed how he viewed hardships in this life. Look at verse eight here again. And this is not fun, but this is truth that we need to know here. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Now watch this. For his sake I have, what's the next word? What's the next word? He says, I have suffered the loss of all things. Now go down to verse 10 as well. You see him repeat this idea. He talks about this, and we like the first part. We like this, especially Easter, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. But we often like to stop there, don't we? Because we don't like what comes next. We like to talk about knowing Christ. We like knowing to talk about, I want to know his power and his resurrection in my life. But there's not a period there, friends. It goes on that we know Christ, know the power of his resurrection, and we may share in his, what's the next one? sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Friends, that was Paul's actual experience. To follow Christ, he gladly embraced hardships and trials and sufferings in this life. I want you to see this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. Notice how he describes his life as a follower of Christ. Remember, he left all this ease and affluence and prestige he had, and this is what he accepted for the sake of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. You keep going there, verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Keep going, verse 26. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Get the picture? Verse 27. He kind of wraps it all up here. In toil and hardship, for many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Talk about a contrast, friends. 
He had it all, remember? He had it all. He had the, the comforts of where he was. He had the fame, the prestige, and all this. And he, instead, he followed Christ. He got this. And he accepts these things as part of God's good plan for his life. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, just a page or two back in your copy, God's word. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, he says, For it has been granted, notice it's granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Who granted it? God did. That God's plan for his people is not necessarily to have an easy life. I say it often, but I want to remind us that because we hear the lie from our culture that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous, and if you're God's follower, life will be easy. No, God's plan is never to get us from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable way possible. That's not his plan for his people. God has granted that for the sake of Christ we believe, but for the sake of Christ that we also suffer for his name. Friends, why? Why is this part of God's plan? Why is God's plan for his children often involve walking down really hard roads in life? You think back to what we studied in James last year, in James chapter 1, verse 2. He tells us why. In James 1, 2, he says to count it all, what's this next word? Joy. Count all joy. Oh, there it is again, what Jesus said about our values, right? That in, in our joy, we sell all we have. Here he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when, not if, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now in verse 3, why is it we find joy in the trials? Because you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, verse 4, something good is building here through the trials. Now, let steadfastness have its full effect. Now, God grants the hard roads for us in life because he has the full effect he's intending for us, and that is going to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, because God knows as we walk the hard roads in life that he is there to walk them with us. As we walk the hard roads and the trials and the hardships and the sufferings of life, with God right there with us, our faith grows and deepens in ways it does not in the times of affluence and ease. And God knows that our godliness and maturity are going to grow much faster in this life and those hard roads than on the easy roads. And so knowing that God is going to bring good from all the hardships of this life, Paul can say, go back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he can say with confidence, I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. Paul can with confidence embrace the hardships of life, knowing that God is going to bring good out of them. Friends, that perspective is as countercultural as it comes, and it comes because he has experienced and knows the resurrection of Christ. But there's something else that helps Paul embrace this perspective, and that's in the very next verse, in verse number 11 here, of how he can say so confidently he can find joy in the trials. Notice he says, By any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And he says, by any means possible, this is not saying he's uncertain about what's eventually going to happen. By any means possible, he's simply saying, I don't know what tomorrow will bring. Because God hasn't shown me what's going to happen tomorrow. God hasn't shown me what's going to happen in a week or a month or a year from now. Friends, we don't know what road we're going to walk through this week. You and I don't know if we're going to have a hard road or an easy road this week. We don't know if 2021 is going to be an easy year or a hard year for us. We don't know that, but we do know what's the end of the journey here. And Paul, that's his confidence here. He doesn't know what's going to happen this week or next week, but he knows this that he will attain the resurrection from the dead. We may not know the journey, but we know the end of the journey. And just as we sang earlier, that when death was arrested and my life began, friends, there's a confidence as we approach the hardships of life, because these trials are temporary. These hardships are temporary. God is going to bring good in them for this season to mature us and sanctify us, but the day is coming for every follower of Christ when the power that rose Jesus from the dead will raise us from the dead as well. And we will be with God for all eternity in heaven, seeing him in all of his glory, seeing him in all of his beauty, and free of the pain, the temptations, and the hardships that we have in this life. Because that means that this is not our home. 
These trials are short and fleeting, and something much better awaits us. Paul shows us this a few verses later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Not here, friends. This is not our home. Our citizenship, our home is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Does he realize the hope we find in the resurrection? It even changes how we view trials in this life. So again, friends, before we move on to the last way we see Paul change, I want to ask us, have we encountered the resurrected Jesus in such a real way, friends, that it changes how we view hardships? Or do we, like the world, see hardships as some curse or some way of God forsaking us? Or is our faith and trust in Christ so real that we find strength and joy to walk through the hardest days of this life, knowing that God is working and knowing that they are only temporary? Because again, we sang this in the song earlier, and we can say those words, but did we mean it when we said, you're my joy when trials are abounding? That's what we proclaimed as a congregation just a few minutes ago in the song. You're my joy when trials are abounding. Abounding, friends, do we really believe that because we've met the resurrected Christ? So for Paul, his belief in Jesus' resurrection changed his identity, changed his values, it changed how he viewed hardships. Number four, it changed what he did each day. It changed what he actually did each and every day. You see, Paul's faith in the resurrected Jesus was not just some philosophical thought process. It wasn't he had an epiphany moment and he just had these fun things to sit around and think about late at night. His faith in Jesus actually changed his day-to-day life in very practical ways. Look at verse number 12, our last verse in our text for today. He says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So he says here, he said, not that I've already obtained this. Now, he doesn't tell us what this is, so he would never have passed my seminary professors, who would never let me put a this without an object next to it, you know. I'm helping my kids with their papers. I don't let them write this without something that follows it, and it drives them crazy. But Paul didn't tell us what's after this. He says, now that I've obtained this, I'm going, okay, Paul, what's this? This is by design vague because it's everything he said. He's saying, now that I've obtained this, knowing Christ fully and experiencing his transforming work in my life, he's not arrived at fully knowing Christ and not arrived at fully being transformed by Christ. So what does that entail for him? What is different because he knows he's not arrived at the end of the journey yet? Here's what he says in verse 12. But he says, I press on. You could translate that word, I strive, I work hard at something. So because he's not fully mature, because he's not arrived in his destination, he says, I press on, I strive, I work hard at something. And friends, in the Greek, this is present tense, it's ongoing. He's saying, day after day after day after day, I keep pressing on, I keep striving, I keep working at something. And what is Paul working at? He says, to make him my own. I'm working to make it, to make knowing Christ my own. Now, I mentioned this earlier, the word make again is kind of weak in translation. It's the word to seize. He's saying, I am working day by day by day with much effort to seize knowing Christ more fully. In other words, because Jesus is holding him, because Jesus has seized him, it didn't lead him to passivity. He's not like, great, Jesus revealed himself to me. I'm good. I'm going to heaven. Peace out. I'm going to live this life the way I want. Instead, he says, no, because Christ has made me own, I am going to strive and keep on striving and keep on striving day after day after day after day to work hard to know Christ more. He has intentionality in pursuing God because God has pursued him. Now, Paul doesn't tell us here exactly how he did that. When we look at the totality of Scripture, it's something that we summarize in this word, the spiritual disciplines. It's quite simply just things like reading the Bible, 
and memorizing Scripture. And meditating, by that I mean thinking deeply about Scripture. It is prayer. Prayer by yourself. Prayer with your family. Prayer with your friends. It's discussing the Bible with your friends. It's worship, not only corporately in here as we sing, but singing to the Lord on your own. Because all those and so much more that Paul made a practice of pursuing God through what we call the spiritual disciplines. Not to earn God's favor, but because he already had God's favor. His encounter with the resurrected Christ changed his daily activities where he prioritized spending time with God. So friends, how about us again? Is our faith so real that we cannot help but want to know God more? Is it, have we so experienced God, have we tasted and seen that he's good that we want even more of him? Friends, I read a quote this week as I was studying, and it just really kind of arrested my attention. He, this author said, if you've been seized by Christ and you're in the grip of his grace, you must press on in your own hot, grasping pursuit of a deeper knowledge of him. Think about that. If you've been seized by Christ, if you understand who the resurrected Jesus is and you believe in him because his grace has been poured in your life, if you've been seized by Christ and you're in the grip of his grace, you must press on in your own high grasping pursuit of a deeper knowledge of him. Now catch this. He says, the gospel allows no room for a bland middle-class ethic that strives to be neither hot nor cold. The gospel allows no room for a bland middle-class ethic that strives to be neither hot nor cold. We are called to a single-minded, determined pursuit of Christ. Friends, we are called to a single-minded, determined pursuit of Christ. And so again, as we think about, does our belief in the resurrected Jesus change us? We have to ask, has it changed my daily activities to where I desire to pursue knowing more of this God who has pursued me? So Paul's belief in Jesus changed his identity, it changed his values, it changed his view of hardships, and changed what he did each and every day. And maybe thinking of that going, I have a long way to go. And friends, I do too. We all have a long way to go in this. None of us have arrived. Paul hadn't even arrived. This, this, when Philippians 3 was written, it was about 30 years after his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. After he'd seen the glory of Christ on display, after he was blinded in the presence of Christ, and he heard the voice of his creator speak to him. 30 years later, Paul has not even arrived. Notice how he began verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. The apostle Paul, who wrote so much for our New Testament, 30 years into this faith journey is going, hey, I'm not perfect yet. He still struggled like we still struggle. Friends, this is a process for him, and it is for us as well. So do not grow weary in this. If you have true faith, he will keep growing you. He will keep working on you your entire life. And so the question for us is not, have we arrived in these things? Have we arrived now in having the right values? Have we arrived in having the right identity? Have we arrived in the right view of hardships and trials? Have we arrived in our priorities each day? It's not a question of that. The question is, are we progressing in our identity being in Christ, not in ourselves? Are we progressing in valuing the things of God instead of the valuing the things we used to value? Are we progressing in seeing trials as God working in them instead of a curse? Are we progressing in our priorities each day? It's not a question of arrival. It's a question of are we even growing at all? Because, friends, if there's no change and no growth, we need to ask, was there really any faith to begin with? Because a true relationship with Christ, a true knowledge of him as the resurrected Jesus will change us. And Paul gives us this hope, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Notice what it tells us here in Philippians 1, 6. But I am sure of this. He is confident of something, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, do you know that to be true in your life? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that the resurrected Christ has seized you and grabbed you? Do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you are a child of God and you have been loved by him and he's put his affections on you? 
And do you see his grace pursuing you and chasing you and changing you so that your identity is becoming more and more in God and not in self? Is your, are your values beginning to change because he is holding you? You're beginning to find your values being more what is eternal and not temporary. Are you finding in the midst of the hardships a joy that you cannot explain because you know your creator is walking those trials with you? And are you finding your priorities changing day by day to where you want to know God more because you've already experienced his goodness? Friends, we've not arrived if you know Christ, he is pursuing you in these things and growing you in these things. So back to our opening question, friends. How is your belief in the resurrection of Jesus changing you? It's a story we know, a story many of us could tell to one another today over lunch. But friends, let's make it personal this week, and let's ask the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and show us how it is changing us. And if it's not changing us, friends, we need to go back and say, Lord, is there any faith there at all? Because true saving faith changes us. But friends, if it is changing us in small ways, we can rejoice in those and we can ask God to fill us with his Holy Spirit so we change even more by his grace. And friends, anywhere we see progress, we give him the thanks for it because it's all his work as he's bringing glory to himself and bringing us joy. Friends, how is your belief in the resurrection of Jesus this Easter Sunday changing you? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've shown yourself to us, that you've revealed yourself to us. And Lord, on this Easter Sunday, we give you thanks that we have have the opportunity to even know you in a personal way. Lord, that you looked upon sinners like us who had no righteousness of our own and no way to get to you, and you made a way that through what Christ did that we could be forgiven, that we could be redeemed, that we could experience grace upon grace upon grace from your hand. And Lord, I pray this day for myself and these precious brothers and sisters that you would increase our sense of awe and wonder at what we're celebrating today. That, God, you would guard us from just the routineness of this, or the familiarity of the story, and you would just really capture our hearts afresh this day to understand who you are and what you've done for us. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today or watching online, Lord, who has never really had real faith, even if they think they've done the externals of stuff, but there's no transformation of heart, Lord, would you awaken them today to their need of you before it's too late? And I pray that before today is over, they would bow the knee and they cry out to you to give them that type of real, transforming, saving faith that radically changes their whole life. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, who've tasted and seen that you are good, God, would you increase our hunger and thirst for you? Would you forgive us for the ways we go through our lives, just oblivious sometimes to what you're wanting to do in our lives, living our lives with our own values for ourselves? Lord, would you forgive us for those things? Would you even this week, as we reflect back on the resurrection and think about what Christ has done, Lord, would you give us new hunger, new affections to go deeper in our pursuit of you because you first pursued us. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song this morning?
you take a minute where you're standing and just praise God for who he is. Some of the truth you've just sung, just in your own words, praise him for his character and his nature. Now would you take just a minute in your own words and to thank the Lord for dying for your sins and rising from the dead, defeating death. take just a moment to ask God for more grace this week. We might grow in pressing on and seizing to know more and more of him because he has shown himself to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we serve a risen Savior, that you are very much alive today ruling and reigning over your creation and being very present with us, your people. Lord, I thank you that you have heard every prayer of all of your saints who are gathered here and all over the world on this Easter Sunday morning. Lord, in these prayers. Thank you that you're all knowing. You knew what we say before you even said it, but you already have heard them. Lord, I pray this week that you show yourself strong on our behalf. You show your faithfulness to your people. And God, you answer these prayers we've just prayed and asking for much grace to grow and pressing on to know you more. Lord, I pray that you would do that in my heart and the heart of these brothers and sisters, that we would press on this week to know more of you, our risen Savior. And Lord, as we know, as we do that, by your grace, you will get all the glory and we will get all the joy. And so we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Easter Sunday.